Okay, so nature conservation in a four degree world, luxury or necessity. Before going any further though, I should say this is very much a joint presentation from the climate change specialists in natural England. Um, abstract pulled together by Nick McGregor, promoter, um, presented by me, but um, with massive input from all the other named parties. Well, Natural England is a conservation agency. It's uh, the government conservation agency for England. And as such, we're charged with looking after and enhancing the landscape, the ecosystems, and the biodiversity that they support of our country. And many of these landscapes, aspects of biodiversity and so on, are very highly valued by the population. They're things that people are attached to, things that people believe are right to conserve, pretty much for their own sake, as well as for their own, the enjoyment by people. But as we come into a, a situation of incredible pressure, really, if some of our fears about the possibility of a four-degree world materialise, how does that stack up? It's one thing to say that we like birds and butterflies and flowers, even that we think it's right in absolute terms to conserve them. But how do we weigh those in the balance against human health and well-being in terms of the security of our homes, our health, and feeding ourselves? Well, we want to say really that that's a false dichotomy to start with that actually a healthy environment, healthy ecosystems, contribute to human health and well-being, not just in a moral, spiritual sense, but also in very practical terms. And the whole concept of ecosystem services has really achieved a much greater degree of acceptance within the last few years. And, um, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment was perhaps a landmark in the development of that approach and the integration of it into policy. But we want to go further than that and say that a very critical aspect of the ecosystem services which we're provided with and can be provided with if we play our cards right is that ecosystems can provide climate change adaptation and mitigation. They're not the only type of adaptation and mitigation. I'm absolutely not saying that, but they're an important component. And I will refer to mitigation, I must confess, uh, as well as adaptation as we go through the talk. The main bulk of it is, though, I want to give you four examples from England. Four is quite a lot, but I want to really try and establish that this is a general principle. I think we've got our heads around the fact that the Amazon is kind of useful for mitigating climate change. I don't think too many people would dispute that. But we need to have a wider perspective. And even down to little old England and its little homely ecosystems messed around by people over millennia. This is a general principle. So my first example picks up on things that Andy Moffat was talking about yesterday. Semi-natural woodland. Not production forestry in the sense of um, Sitka spruce or even, who knows, eucalyptus. But semi-natural woodlands, 
We don't really do natural in this country, I'm afraid. Um, but we do do semi-natural. It's semi-natural because we have some of the same species that occurred before people started clearing forests. But it's very fragmented. But there is, there is still something natural about it. It isn't a plantation. It's species-rich. It supports a lot of biodiversity. And what sort of adaptation and mitigation services does it provide? Well, I'll whiz through this as Andy's already been there, but carbon sequestration, renewable fuel and materials, reducing the risks of soil erosion and flooding. If you plant woodland in the right place in a catchment, it can reduce flooding and at the same time be a valuable conservation habitat. Microclimate regulation and sh providing shading and shelter even within a town situation, with a small wood. And low carbon recreation, simply getting out there in the natural environment. Let's not drive to the other end of the country, let's have local woods that people can get out and enjoy. And there's a lot we can do to enhance semi-natural woodlands as sources of adaptation and mitigation. We can expand the woodland area. We have a rather pathetic 9% forest cover in England compared to 37% across the EU as a whole. But it's not just about big scale expanding the existing woods, it's also about small scale planting on farms, in hedgerows for example, a few trees there, or within urban areas. And also exploiting what we do have for multiple uses, and this perhaps is something where the conservation world has to move on a little and to see where we can deliver multiple benefits, where we can cut firewood out of a natural system without detriment to conservation. Now, I want to focus in on one even more specific example, Whiteham Woods. Why Whiteham Woods? Well, um, yeah, I'll be honest, I've done research there for 17 years, um, so I know a little about it. But it's also got a local connection. It's owned by Oxford University, and uh, if you look west from the centre of Oxford, it's the kind of green stuff on the hill just outside the town looking west. It's also, because Oxford University have owned it, there's a plethora of research going on there, research projects going on there. One of which is this uh, flux tower maintained by my former employers at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology to give us a really good understanding of carbon balance. So let's put some numbers on it then. And I suppose it's important to say, this is a site that is managed for conservation. It's not a production forest in the sense you'd normally understand it. As a result of the flux tower work, uh, our current estimates are that it sequesters about 2.7 tonnes of carbon per hectare per year. Um, I understand, and this, this was uh, an ECI uh, MSC project actually, that this is equivalent to very roughly speaking, the carbon emissions of three Oxford colleges um, over the course of a year when you scale it up to 400 hectares. So it's doing its bit for Oxford University's carbon balance, uh, offsetting some of the lights, you know. And we know that it's about three degrees cooler inside the wood than outside. We've made the measurements, we know that. Even cooler on the ground, I might say, in terms of the soil temperature. And although much of the woods is not particularly actively managed, even so, firewood's been cut from the woods recently, small amount of income from that, and obviously um, replacing 
fossil fuels, hopefully, in the homes it goes to. And even sustainable food, venison. Ask most woodland conservationists and foresters in Britain, and they hate deer because they prevent regeneration in woods. So removing some deer, eating them, is a, a sort of win-win situation, with apologies to vegetarians. But if you're going to eat meat, it has to be the best sort. Right, moving on then. Intertidal habitats. Um, by that, I mean, fairly obviously, habitats between high and low tide lines. Things like salt marshes and mudflats. A bit of salt marsh here to look at. Now, we've, we've heard rather a lot yesterday about hard flood defences in terms of dikes, for example. But you can also get flood defence from some of these coastal wetland habitats. It provides storage space for high tides. It reduces the wave energy actually hitting the, the, the shore. And although a lot more work needs to be done to quantify this, we do also know that there is potential for considerable carbon sequestration in some of these intertidal habitats. It also provides shellfish and fish nurseries. But, of course, in the context of climate change, these are habitats that are under threat. But we don't just have to give up on them. We can create new intertidal habitats. And the process of managed realignment, actually reverting some areas of agricultural land, particularly to a semi-natural condition of intertidal habitat, is something that's actively being pursued in the UK, what we call managed realignment. Just to give a concrete example here, or, well, I suppose a a non-concrete example, really. The Alkborough Flats on the Humber Estuary on the east coast of Britain, of England, it's a good example. 440 hectares of low-lying agricultural land, which were lying behind a flood embankment put up in 1956. In 2007, we did something that, that would be anathema to most Dutchmen, I suspect, having discussed this with a few. The bank was breached. And intertidal habitats and little islands were created, um, creating biodiversity, but also helping to protect 300,000 people from flooding. And this was a partnership conducted by, uh, involving some of my colleagues, but, but led by the Environment Agency. And so this is something that is actually happening. It is real. It isn't going to solve all the problems. There's no way anyone's going to um, revert London to an intertidal habitat. Um, the Thames barrier is, is there hard and fast. But there are places where you can square the circle of protecting conservation interests and providing adaptation. OK, I'm going to whiz through very quickly now. Blanket mire, wetlands covering the hills, formed largely by this moss, sphagnum, together with various other species. One of our biggest carbon stores, probably our biggest single carbon store in England in um, semi-natural habitat, something like 350,000 hectares storing roughly 1,000 tonnes of carbon per hectare. Also a major source of water supply to many of our cities. And there's an active programme in some areas to restore that to a better condition by blocking drainage from the past. Semi-natural rivers and catchments. This is a 
a river, the, Lin, the, sorry, the Limington River in Hampshire, rather unlike many rivers you see, with, not with straightened concrete banks. This has got vegetation growing on it, and it, it meanders in a sort of natural way. Those are slow-flowing rivers, and they stabilize the water supply, both in terms of quality and quantity. And they can also provide flood risk management. There's very good evidence. If you create more wetlands within a catchment, you can reduce flood risk. And they store carbon again in some of those wetlands. And so one of the other things that are being looked at, and again our colleagues in the Environment Agency are very actively involved in that, is restoring rivers that have been straightened to original channels and the floodplain function. Right, some, some common themes then. Semi-natural ecosystems provide adaptation, <coughs> mitigation, and support biodiversity. We can have it all. Well, maybe. There's a fundamental link between biodiversity and the services they provide. An open question about how many species we, we need, but often it's not a choice. We, we provide services and support species at the same time. But of course, in the context of four degrees, on the one hand, these adaptation and mitigation measures become more valuable, but that climate change also represents a threat to ecosystems. And conservation strategies themselves need to adapt. And a lot of our work in recent years has been to look at how we might adapt conservation series of reports here published by uh, some of the authors of this paper. Just very quickly, how that might look, and I, I would direct you to a poster by Humphrey Crick, my colleague and others, including me, um, which will tell you more. But broadly speaking, principles for climate change adaptation in the biodiversity sector. Protect what we've got now, the current species and habitats. Build resilience by having larger, more continuous areas, more heterogeneity in our conservation sites with more diversity of topography and microclimate. But also, we have to start thinking about how we accommodate change and perhaps facilitating dispersal, if necessary, translocating species, and accept those that spread. And this is a critical point. As we shift towards four degrees Celsius rises and more, we have to start shifting the balance towards some of these more radical options. And we will have to accept and protect some of these changed ecosystems. And there is uncertainty. Obviously, we've talked about that this morning. So that will also require flexibility. And I, I, I very much endorse some of Mark's comments just now. But there's no getting away from the fact that there will be increasingly painful choices as these changes become more serious. Okay, just to wrap up then. Conservation, luxury or necessity? Clearly, we think it's a necessity. Healthy ecosystems can help us to avoid a four degrees Celsius rise. Clearly, we've got to do a lot more for ourselves, but they can help. Healthy ecosystems can help us to cope with the consequences of a four-degree rise. They can help us to adapt. But at that higher range of change, those healthy ecosystems may be different ecosystems from the ones we have now. So we have to be prepared for difficult decisions. 
And I hope I don't sound too glib in sort of racing through some of these advantages of, of ecosystem conservation for adaptation and mitigation. We have to seize the opportunities that are there, but I can't kid you that anyone really wants to be in that position of making those more difficult decisions. So a few acknowledgements. Many of our colleagues have contributed to all of our helpful, helpful discussions and information. Thanks.